Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. quick announcement before we start the show today. I will be at Theology Beer Camp October 13th through 15th in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, along with other podcasters, The Bible for Normal People, New Evangelicals, A People's Theology, Rethinking Faith, Crackers and Grape Juice, and more, as well as speakers, Diana Butler-Bass, Grace Jisung Kim, Adam Clark, Sarah Lane Ritchie, Brian McLaren, Aaron Simmons from the Kierkegaard episode, our own Myron Penner. Anyway, we're going to be at this very fun event. I'm going to be doing some live podcasting. We'll be having some game type activities uh, and you can come. You can get 50 bucks off your registration with the coupon code YHP. Head to theologybeer.camp to get some more information and register if you want to come hang out in person. Look forward to seeing you there. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Caitlin Olson, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you are a marriage family therapist in Northern California, Mm -hmm. uh, not too far away from my old stomping grounds. And you reached out to me with an idea that I immediately said yes to because it was such a good idea. If I could put it into one sentence, it would be this, which I took from your email. 
betrayal trauma, the concept and what we know and what we've learned about betrayal trauma is really helpful for people understanding why systemic betrayal can feel so personal. And in this instance, we're talking about, you know, the systemic betrayal of the church Mm -hmm. uh, for people through spiritual abuse or through, you know, just like shitty church stuff that led to their deconstruction (laughs) or, you know, all the way from serious abuse to, to just like, wow, this was not what I was taught that it was. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, why does that feel personal? Especially when it's not personal, when there's not like a person who harmed us that we can point to. Yeah. So before we get into sort of the trauma and psychology angles, tell us a little bit about your own story around faith change. Because one of the things you said to me is you personally really resonate with the Mm -hmm. way this concept has helped you in your own story. So Mm -hmm. what do we need to know about your own story? So my slice of Christianity is Mormonism, and that's a really, you know, high demand, really involved religion. Yeah. Similar to when I first learned about betrayal trauma and kind of thought like, oh, that's really hard. That's really sad. And that's not about me. You know, that's separate from me. When I first started to feel some kind of conflict and really looking back, start some deconstruction with my religion and my relationship to this church was just really examining how my church and Christianity in general kind of tends to treat members of the queer community and the other marginalized communities. And because I'm straight and cisgender and have a lot of privileged identities and experiences, you know, I got, I kind of check a lot of boxes and I fit the mold really easily. I had the same kind of experience, like, oh, that's pretty hard, but like, that's not really apply to me. And you know, I, I'm not going to judge those people, you know, trying to kind of toe that line and not really even conscious of how much tension there was under the surface. And then when I started to learn about betrayal trauma at the systemic level and how, yes, my religion and again, Christianity in general is betraying actively certain, you know, actively and overtly certain populations like the queer community and other marginalized populations. I also started to see how it was it, the church was betraying my gender, you know, and my experience as a woman in this church in a very patriarchal structure. And of course, this is around all sorts of feminist movements in our culture and in our world as a whole, and a lot of political responses and, and feminist responses to political movements, you know, all of this kind of different awakenings. So over the last couple of years, I've just kind of been able to identify more and more clearly how betrayal trauma applies to me specifically in my religion and how betrayed I feel and have felt and letting myself feel that betrayal and address the trauma that is inherent to it. That's so interesting. The idea of something that is not apparently applicable to us And then we sort of will gloss over it for some amount of time. And then maybe it like sticks in our craw or, you know, we become aware, Mm -hmm. like you're saying, to the plight of queer people, queer Christians, Mm -hmm. um, people of color, you know. And then we start going like what's interesting being being a male as opposed to being female is an interesting difference here because then you go, oh, interesting. You know, the LDS church, quite, quite patriarchal, certainly no, you know, overt plans for that to change anytime soon. Yeah. But I want to, I want you to say a little bit more about that. Just that process of going, oh, this isn't about me. Oh, interesting. I'm learning more about this thing that is about these other people, maybe that I know and care about. And, oh, actually Mm -hmm. this relates to this other thing that is Mm -hmm. about me that Mm -hmm. I wasn't noticing Mm because I wasn't the prime, you know, target or prime victim of it. Yes. Can you say more about that? One of the phrases that has really helped me make sense and kind of falls under the umbrella of betrayal trauma is benevolent sexism. And this is something that I did not make up, right? I heard through kind of the ether, but really latched onto. And the benevolence of the sexism is what I think confused me for a long time, right? Kind of feeling like women are special, women are, we need to protect them. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of pat on the head. And 
also shoved out the door you know, at the same time. Whereas with other communities, there was really overt bigotry, right? And even with, we love you, we just don't love what you're doing, or we, you know, the world isn't ready for you, whatever version of that, it was still really black and white. Here's a rule that excludes you. Whereas with women, yes, there are rules and it's black and white, but it was much more, it was just coded and kind of confused by all that benevolence, you know, and all of that quote unquote praise and quote unquote acceptance, as long as you toe the line, right. As long as you stay in your lane. And when I was a brand new therapist wanting to work with leadership, for example, you know, in my local, in my local congregations, almost explicitly feeling that pat on the head, right. And just really being ignored, minimized and validated as any sort of professional. And it was pretty quick that I realized like, I'm, I'm trying to move out of my lane and they don't like it, you know, and this is really, really uncomfortable. And of course it was an discomfort I could tolerate and it had nothing to do with my identity or my real like existential well-being. But on the other hand, it was death by a thousand cuts, you know, just like slow and steady infection and sting and pain. You know, as an emerging researcher on spiritual harm and abuse, it wouldn't surprise me at all that 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 would basically feel abusive or harmful might lead to some kind of traumatic experience. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of women that I surveyed, for instance, say, you know, I I treated less than because of my gender and less than could be could be at first seem kind of barely less than. Yes. And maybe like if your personality is you happen to like being a homemaker, you happen to, you know, like just just culturally, like who you are doesn't run up against the norms very much. It's going to feel less stringent than like, well, what if you're called to be a preacher? Yeah. Then all of a sudden that less than is I was treated way less than because I can't fulfill God's calling on my life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like that's like about as central yeah. as it gets. Yeah. So it can yeah. real people's experience can really can really yeah. vary depending on what they're kind of like. And that's where it can almost get dangerous and really insidious because the external can become eternal internalized, right? I'm told over and over again that these things are acceptable, you know, in my role as a woman or in my identity as a woman. And I, I mean, me, myself, but also kind of all Christian women, 90%, right? And yeah. and I fit that, and yet it still doesn't quite feel real. Like, I don't really feel seen, or I don't feel actually accepted. I feel like just my roles are accepted, or my performance, or my productivity is accepted. I don't think anyone really sees me, or knows me, or wants me to be here in my fullest form. And because for the most part that works for me, I'm just going to kind of ignore those little paper cuts, you know, and then that external messaging of any doubt or any wondering or any conflict, that's a sign of Satan, or that's a sign of a lack of faith. That's not the real you. And that gets internalized and the danger can come in when that tension becomes so strong, you know, and that internal split becomes so deep that then we get into some sort of psychological wounds, right? And some deep, serious danger or concern. I just wanted to pick up on one thing you said a little bit ago, which is that idea of benevolent sexism. Mm -hmm. Carolyn Custis James, who was a very early podcast guest on this show, she calls it soft patriarchy. Hmm. Um, and it's, it's basically a very similar, I I imagine Mm -hmm. it's the same idea that it's like, well, what God really wants is not this kind of really mean patriarchy where women are property and they can't vote. But what God wants is this sort of soft patriarchy, this benevolent sexism where, yeah, men are above women in all these various ways, mm-hmm. but they're supposed to be really nice about it, uh-huh. <laughs> essentially, is, is yeah. what it boils down to. Um, yeah. But as soon as a woman, for instance, challenges that view with an alternate reading of the text, a mm-hmm. feminist theological argument, uh, right. a feminist biblical scholarship argument, well, 
now, like, that's when sort of the talons are going to come out and not even necessarily consciously. This mm-hmm. is where the, the sort of privilege conversation mm-hmm. intersects really interestingly mm-hmm. about how we can internalize our privilege as well. And if we've mm-hmm. never really been challenged on anything, it feels it, then it feels very personal yeah. to the man. Like, yes. why are you ju- why are you attacking me? I'm not attacking uh-huh. you. I'm attacking a way of reading the text. And uh-huh. here's an alternate way, you know, so it it, mm-hmm. it it gets I guess that's that's sort of getting into. I just wanted to say. Episode nine of this show, way, way, way back. We're in the yeah. 140s or so now. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. If people want to listen to that, there's a whole conversation about soft and hard patriarchy and different ways of looking at the text. Uh, newer listeners may have not caught that. Anyway, mm-hmm. I think that's maybe a bridge into how the systemic can feel personal. Yes, you did a good job there, I think, articulating how it can feel personal for the person who's kind of the instrument of the betrayal, right? Mm-hmm. This this priesthood leader person, he's not he's not doing it maliciously or on purpose, but he's an instrument in the hands of the system that is betraying individuals, right? Yeah. And so it's not good for him. And just like abuse is not good for the abuser, right? It's not healthy for anyone. And and Carolyn says that too, by the way, in that conversation that that uh patriarchy is bad for women. It's also bad for men. <laughs> Yeah, so it's it, bad for everyone. The yeah. system is unjust and unjust systems don't actually help anyone. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. an unjust uh, economic situation, which really doesn't help the people that it exploits. It also doesn't help the, the rampant wealth builder. That person yeah. might think it's helping them. They might be right. physically comfortable and powerful, right. but it's not like making them better in no. the grand scheme of things. Right. No, if succession has taught us anything, right? It just creates a lot of distance between you and the rest of the humans around you. I was going to say, you know, Jesus's various parables in the gospels, but succession (laughs) works as well because I'm a massive, I'm a huge Greg head over here. Yeah. Team team Greg. (laughs) That could, we could do that for an hour probably. Well, so uh, don't tempt me. I'm on my second way through the most recent season. So that'll tell you all you need to know. Yeah, you'll Uh, win. But let's use this as a way of, yeah, let's dive into that idea of something that is not personal. It's systemic. It's not individual is a better way of saying it, right? Yeah. A non-individual harm feels personal. Yes. Yeah. So it's not aimed at me, right? But it affects me. Right. And feels like it is aimed at me, right? It's because of the power difference and the dependency, and especially in a religion where, you know, I'm not nearly at all an expert, especially compared to you, but in these religions, right, in Christianity, the idea is follow the guidance we patriarchal, powerful people give you, and you will be saved, or you will have eternal life, or you will have blessings beyond measure, right? And so we're not talking about necessarily maybe day-to-day physical safety, but we are talking about eternal spiritual well-being. And we are taught, and I say we as as all Christians, we are taught to do what we're told so that we can reap the rewards. And if that message or if that power is twisted and, and abused, it can create these, um, again, internal conflicts, right? Because the external becomes internalized. So it's personal because it's about my salvation and it feels very threatening. And there are so many social consequences, let alone spiritual consequences of quote unquote, breaking the rules or getting outside of my lane or challenging the way things have always been done or the way things have always been interpreted. Yeah. When you said power differential, I thought you were going to go a different direction, you know, more like the kind of language we are very accustomed to to hearing these days, you know, for instance, gender, power differential, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. But where it kind of, where you kind of went with that is interesting. It's like, well, so take the, take the male leader, take the elder mm-hmm. of your local LDS church, or I think, is that the right word? Elders, right? Bish- they're elders and bishops. Elders yeah. and bishops, right. So take that guy and you go, well, Okay, on first blush, that guy's got more power than 
the woman who comes in a meeting and says, hey, I've been reading these other takes on the Bible or these, mm-hmm. other, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it seems like, okay, he's got the power. She doesn't. But you're bringing in something interesting, which is like, well, actually, the LDS church has the power over him or take it into a less hierarchical church. So we'll go Baptists, uh, minimal mm-hmm. hierarchy. Well, the theology that the Baptist preacher believes has the power over him, mm-hmm. God's approval, eternal life, various kinds of rewards. That's an interesting way of looking at power differential. Yeah. Well, it is. I think it's really interesting. And it is kind of that mind blowing experience where if we take this out of just the mortal plane, right? And a lot of us Christians believe, like really believe in an afterlife, you know, and really believe in the decisions we make in this life affecting the quality of the next. And especially in Mormonism, you know, there's a lot of specificity around following the commandments and keeping your covenants in this life so you can be with God in the next. And right. They're very specific and very high demand, right? And very measurable and also very measured and specifically tracked by your leaders. And then also socially tracked, you know, informally clocked, you know, what you're wearing, what you're consuming, what you're attending or not attending, how you're spending your money, what words you're using, what books you're reading, what movies you're watching. I mean, these are things that are tracked. And so any quote unquote misstep, you know, or any not fitting the mold in those ways can lead to not only social consequences like isolation or um, rejection or just being totally an outsider, but also your friend might be best friends with the bishop's wife. And then there's a little bit of information being passed around and not always maliciously sometimes, sure. But usually out of this quote unquote benevolent concern, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Oh, I'm worried about so-and-so I saw that she was doing a B or C on Saturday. And then she wasn't at church on Sunday. So maybe your husband, the Bishop wants to do a little follow-up. And then he has this information that could affect your again, quote unquote worthiness to attend things like our temple, which is not where we go on Sundays, right? This is a really, separate and sacred location. Mm -hmm. And um, there is a much higher barrier of entry. One plus one plus one equals three. And also how all of this can get really confusing if you are not willing to operate in a black and white way. And because life is just not black and white, you know, you either have to really suppress all of the tension and just decide to kind of agree with everything you're told in the subconscious way, you know, make a subconscious decision or you decide I'm going to live in the gray and I'm going to ask questions and I'm going to hold a belief in this faith or this religion or this gospel that is really important to me. And also like really, really hope and have faith and cross my fingers that these things that I'm not checking off this long list aren't going to do me forever. I want to respond to in terms of Mormonism, it seems like that may have given you a sort of clearer lens experientially to this dynamic. Because if I compare LDS, you know, it's it does have very clear rules. Things mm-hmm. are quantified. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, 10% tithing is not a, a rule of thumb in Mormonism and mm-hmm. they keep track, you know, mm-hmm. that you've got mm-hmm. the temple, which is sort of incentivizing certain behaviors, you know, getting married in the temple versus not getting married in the temple. This is a big deal. Yeah. And so I wonder if, I wonder if like your sort of sensibility for this dynamic was honed and sort of sharpened by the fact that you happened mm. to grow up LDS. Growing up LDS. Yeah. I think you're right. Gave me this really clear template, right. For how betrayal trauma can manifest. And then as a young adult meeting people, because I grew up in Utah and 95% of my neighbors were all LDS. And most of my friends were at least LDS adjacent, you know, if not in the church and 
So in my 20s, meeting other Christian people who were like, I haven't found the church that fits me yet in this new city, or I'm not loving my church. I'm going to go try this smaller one. And I was like, what? You know, like how you just get to choose like they they track us. Right. And on the one hand, it's really kind of creepy, you know, to think about it. But then it's also kind of soothing and nice. And logistically, it's a very organized organization. But there's there's not that kind of. opportunity to exercise agency in the way that other Christian denominations have. Yeah. It's just really different. So then that other idea was about power in this way. I mean, power just in the powerful in our lives, the, the, the power of faith, of religion, of, of religious community, of spiritual experience. This is a a major tenet of my argument for why spiritual abuse is worth studying Mm-hmm. is just that religion is super powerful for people. Mm-hmm. And so we should know as well as we can the ways in which that goes awry. Mm-hmm. Religion, it is a force of tremendous good. I'm saying in individual lives from a psychological level, I don't just mean like hospitals and charities, but like individually, it's like, uh, as you probably know, being a, a trauma therapist, like it is very commonly one of the primary sources people draw on for recovering from trauma Mm -hmm. is their faith. And Mm -hmm. this, uh, listeners might be getting bored of me saying this many times, but (laughs) this is the particularly pernicious thing about spiritual abuse is that it can cut off one of the primary, if not the primary source of healing for the trauma it is inflicting. Yeah. Right. It's like getting injured at the hospital. So, and that kind of came up in what you were saying around, it's a kind of a dependency Um, and not necessarily in a bad way. And I think this is where we can maybe get into sort of the theoretical underpinnings. Cause I Mm -hmm. believe that from the stuff you pointed me to, like it started with like police and other sort Mm -hmm. of services that we are dependent on. Like I am dependent upon the police, not necessarily in a bad way. Most of the time I would much rather pay a few bucks a month and outsource policing Mm -hmm. to a police department and not have to literally guard my own property all the time or what, you know, like that's (laughs) a good, that's fine. I'm into that in general, but if something goes awry and the police don't do what, what I'm dependent upon them to do, whoa, the, the power that has, Mm -hmm. right. So I'll just use that as a a ramp to kind of let you go where you want to go. Yeah. There's this kind of double whammy, right? This this one-two punch that happens when the organization or the place or the person that not only we rely on, but has been, has proven trustworthy, then turns around and betrays, right? So one way that I heard it described a lot when I was working, especially in my early days working with couples, you know, with around sexual betrayal, was the confusion and that just push and pull that would come up because here's this person, my partner who I've always gone to when things have been hard and you know, they're imperfect. It's not always great, but they're the person that I either always have gone to gone to or have always wanted to go to. And so they've been a source of comfort for me. And now they're the source of the pain, right? So I want to go to this person, right? Or I want to go to this spiritual leader to help me navigate this faith crisis and I'm being re-traumatized and traumatized over and over. And then with the police. Yeah. Yeah. It's especially painful. Right. And it systemically happens in this magnitude that we can't really grasp unless we look through this lens of the betrayal trauma theory. And that theory was originally kind of focused, as I understand it, on institutional betrayal, but over the years, like like when I first saw your email, the terms betrayal trauma, I thought of intimate partner betrayal mm-hmm. because the the clinic where I, I happen to be an intern right now, that's kind of one of their specialties. Mm-hmm. Just talk a little bit about that, like how betrayal trauma can be understood both from like systems, the police, the church, mm-hmm. whatever, mm-hmm. and individuals, my spouse, my yeah. family member. Yeah. So I want to just mention and make sure to give credit to Jennifer Fry, Dr. Jennifer Fry. She is the one who coined this term and did all the research and published the first 
research in 1997. And so, and she has a really compelling personal story around betrayal and betrayal trauma. There's an interesting article. I'll get you the links. You can put it in the show notes. Um, but she's, she's a very worthy protagonist, you know, in the betrayal trauma theory world. And so I, I've learned most of what I'm about to share from her regarding systemic betrayal. So I'll use an example if that's okay to just kind of help illustrate this. Let's say that there's a couple and it's kind of a traditional arrangement and he's the breadwinner and she stays home and maybe there's a kid or two on the surface. Everything is just like pretty normal, typical things don't look awry, but you know, behind closed doors, there's some sort of abuse happening, psychological, emotional, verbal, and maybe physical. And if things get violent and there's any sort of visual evidence of that violence, that's when our systems tend to take things most seriously, whether it's, again, a religious leader or police or other legal system representatives. Yeah. She's got a black eye or whatever. Right. She goes to the hospital and the doctors are like, oh, we got to call the police and the police come, they investigate. And you know, every situation is different. Every police officer is different. And if what happens is anything below taking things very, very seriously, that is another betrayal. So not only is this woman betrayed by her partner and then goes to get help from resources that are supposed to help her, she is betrayed by those larger systems. And it's not, again, it's not personal. You know, this police officer or doctor or her social worker isn't looking at her and being like, yeah, I want to ruin your life. You know, I'm here to not believe you. They're trained by this greater system at play and through their life experiences in this culture that is based on a lot of patriarchy and bigotry and traditions and historical events that support systemic betrayal trauma. You know, all kind of all the rivers feed into the same ocean. So she goes home, right? And she decides, I guess I have to handle this on my own, whether subconsciously or not, and goes on to try to make this abusive relationship work, likely because she's dependent on him, certainly for that emotional attachment that we all need. Even if it's insecure or dangerous, she still needs it. Mm -hmm. And then probably for financial support, for practical support, to put food on the table, to feed her children, to keep a roof over her head. And if she's isolated, which often goes hand in hand with abuse, she doesn't have a friend to go stay with or family to ask for help from. And unless she gets plugged into some other resources that don't get nearly as much funding or publicity like shelters or um, women's support networks that are really, really safe, she might try going to the police again, but she probably won't. She might not go to the hospital again because it was so harmful for her. And so she's further isolated. If you'd like more, you have permission. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash dancoke. That link is in the show notes. Patrons get at least two additional episodes per month exclusive to them as well as access to the patron-only Facebook group, which is an awesome little online community for talking through all the crap that we are thinking as our faiths and our lives change. Um, It's a great, great community. So again, patreon.com slash dancoke, five bucks a month, uh, support something that you care about and join the community. Back to the episode. I want to focus more on systemic religious harm. Yeah, because, you know, I think we do talk a lot about individual, you know, leaders that that's kind of more what we understand. You know, there was a whole podcast series, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill about Mark Driscoll and how Mm -hmm. abusive he was. That's kind of been in the water. The thing that I think is really unique in this conversation is how being harmed by a system can feel personal, can feel like being harmed by a person such that betrayal trauma researchers, therapists literally treat it the same way. Like a a client Mm -hmm. is treated roughly the same way. Obviously nobody is one size fits all, but like, but like the concepts work for both. 
that is mm-hmm. so interesting. And that's the thing I want to apply to church hurt, yeah. um, spiritual harm and abuse. So if it, if we change the abuse from physical to, uh, or not physical abuse, but sexual betrayal, and then this couple who's Christian goes to their Mormon bishop, right? To ask mm-hmm. for some spiritual guidance. And he says, this is not a big deal. You need to forgive. We need to move past this. Maybe if you just like had more sex with him, or maybe if he felt like, you know, more appreciated, then he would never do this again. And again, some women have the consciousness and the awareness to say, no, that's not helpful. I'm going to go to another source, but lifelong members of this patriarchal church might not have that. And they've been trained to default to the men around them, especially the men with priesthood authority. And so, okay, okay, Bishop, I'll read this scripture. I'll take this article. I'll pray more. You know, I'll try to forgive as Jesus taught us to. And, and they try, right. But they've also learned that that's a dead end and that they're going to get the same message over and over. And the Bishop is not the bad guy. That's the thing. And kind of, we are all the bishop, right? We all participate in betrayal trauma in all ways. We experience it and we perpetuate it. So it's not about blame. It's about what you're kind of guiding us to, right? Going up the chain, quote unquote. Yeah. And looking how these institutions, like these really big, whether they're actually big or just kind of big in our lives, right? Have a big presence in our lives, hold so much power and so much weight, And when we think about really common, even trite, maybe Christian phrases, but something like, what would Jesus do? Like we are constantly told overtly to not really trust ourselves and to try to put ourselves in someone else's shoes and default to what that person would do or would want us to do or expect us to do. And that's just represented by the bishop or the preacher or the priest or even, you know, the female leaders, because often to ascend in leadership as a woman in patriarchal organizations, you have to adopt benevolent sexism, right? right. As your view. Yeah. You have to live that way to fit in. Yeah. Now, I, want, I just want to clear something up really quick. Cause I don't know the LDS teaching on this in most Protestant churches. If you said that one spouse had cheated on the other spouse, mm-hmm. even most biblical literalists will consider that grounds for separation or divorce because Jesus specifically mentions that in one of the tellings. uh, I don't know if it's Luke or Matthew, one of the sermons on sermon on the Mounts or plane. So I don't know if it's, is that different in LDS? So there's this phrase called Bishop roulette. It just depends. It depends on who's in that position for that three year period. Oh, now we're getting Protestant. Yeah. It's very, (laughs) It's very, you know, it's, it's a volunteer position. This isn't a career. This guy has a day job. Right. So, and it depends on like, did he eat breakfast that morning? What's his mood? Like is, does he have a history of infidelity that is coming up? And we as clinicians know how to address that and do ourself of the therapist's work. Bishops have zero training and are thrown into this position. So again, it's not, you know, I want to teach bishops. I want to help them learn how to be better in this role, but I'm not like really mad at them for doing what they've been trained to do and, and what right. they're expected to do for their eternal salvation. Right. So right. to answer the question, of course, that's the kind of thing that if a couple comes in and he's like, I had an affair and I'm really sorry and it's over and I want to repent and I want to keep my marriage together. That's where the pressure is on for this couple to stay together because right. we want to protect marriages and families and keep them together above all yeah. else. And if, if things carry on or he's unrepentant or an apologetic or continues to lie, et cetera, et cetera. Then, you know, bishops sometimes run out of patience, but sometimes they don't. And often they don't have that trauma lens, you know, they just don't know any better. And so yes, technically it's a sin and technically it's something that could get you in serious disciplinary trouble in the Mormon church. And it takes a while to get there usually. Totally. Yeah. That, and that's starting to sound a bit more like what people would experience in a more standard, um, evangelical type situation where, Mm -hmm. yeah, the husband says, well, I want to, or, you know, whatever the betraying partner, of course, says, uh, no, I do want to make this work. And, you know, my impression of a lot of those meetings, which of course are generally behind closed doors. It's not like I've been to a lot of these meetings. 
uh, is that, you know, sincerity is treated with a lot of deference. Yes. If someone appears sincere, yes. that they want to be godly or whatever, yeah. that's given like a 5x multiplier. Yeah. You know, and the and the uh, concrete details are not given that multiplier. Yes. And that's yep. what you were talking about earlier, which is like there is sort of downward pressure from the religious system in most mm-hmm. of these denominations yeah. of Christianity. Yeah. To downplay certain things because what's at stake is eternal. Yes. Essentially. Yeah. And so those eternal stakes exert power downward mm-hmm. on all the actors in mm-hmm. in this little mini drama that yes. we're describing. Yes. Right? And so yep. that, I mean, that itself is a way of understanding how sy- systemic stuff can be personal. Mm-hmm. Because the power, it's like that conversation is happening in 2,000 church back rooms every month across America, yeah. it's all the same power. Yeah. Be, and, and yet these 2000 rooms are full of people who are feeling that personally, they're feeling yes. the the personal effects of that thing that billions of Christians share. That's interesting. Yep. For sure. That's a really good way to put it, that the, the numbers are, are high and yet it feels really, really personal and individual because it, it is, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, we're all alone together. We're all together in our loneliness, right? It's, it's a shared experience, even though we're not openly sharing. Just take a, a generic, you know, new client like this, yeah. like what are the pieces that you're putting together and, and what are the first steps that you're working with them toward to, to, to sort of put the pieces together of this yeah. experience and take it seriously? Yeah. Lately I've, my work is almost exclusively with Mormon women who are grappling with betrayal trauma at the systemic level. You know, they're, they're not showing up for marriage trouble. It's more this new awareness. And there's a really big feminist movement happening in the Mormon church right now as Mm. a result, I think of not going to church for months and months because of the pandemic and having space from just those habits and those rituals. Yep. And then also, like I referenced earlier, these, like political movements and social movements, just creating a lot of division. And so people are feeling like they have to kind of pick a side. And so they're coming in saying, you know, I've been a member my whole life and I'm just realizing now how hard it is as a woman or how hard it is, even though I check all these boxes for so many other people who don't check the boxes. And so I start by validating, you know, that's pretty like standard. I want them to know a, they're not crazy and B they're not alone. And then I start to try to teach them pretty much from day one, minute one about betrayal trauma. And I want you to understand that there's a term for this. It's similar to diagnosis, you know, which has its own pros and cons, but it's kind of nice to be able to have a word and some sort of textbook, you know, to kind of follow. So I can't tell you, I got so many emails when I did my survey to develop my spiritual abuse scale. Mm. I got so many emails from people saying simply, thank you for sending out this survey with these items on it that I Uh may or may not have experienced to see them written out as survey items was like, validating. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was 100%. a therapeutic value. Yeah. And, no. and of course I've experienced that too. Like when I learned, Oh, I have panic disorder. These are mm-hmm. panic attacks. Like that mm-hmm. was really helpful for me. Mm-hmm. A bunch of other things too. So yeah. But I yeah. just thought that was like, wow, all they did was like do me a solid <laughs> and take a survey and it had therapeutic value yes. to just see it written down. Totally. Yeah. It's amazing how just kind of open, transparent conversation can be so healing. And that's where I get hopeful about organizations like religions or institutions is that it's not complicated, right? It's simple. It can, it can feel really hard at at this big organizational level. It can feel really risky, but it's pretty simple how to heal this stuff. You know, you just kind of show a consistent open willingness to talk about it. I wrote down, you know, you're not crazy. You're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, the power of that, because uh, especially dealing with, you know, women in patriarchal churches, since that's your clientele. And and also it, I think it applies best to this idea of like 
well, what am I just like one of the weird women? Like I just can't get it or something. When in reality, like as we are seeing some very, very good scholarship, I'm thinking of Beth Barr's The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which I've been listening to on audiobook. Like the evidence is flimsy mm-hmm. on the side of the majority view that like God wants soft patriarchy for humans and the church and the world. The the evidence is not strong and it survives on basically everybody repeating to each other that they're doing something biblical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's mm-hmm. sort of like a, a confirmation mm-hmm. by a circle. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not in that confirmation by a circle, you can explicitly or implicitly be made to feel like you must be crazy and therefore alone. Crazy people are by definition alone. Uh They are the only ones that see things the way they do because they're untethered from reality. And so for uh, a client to just spend time with you and you just are like, you're not crazy. You're not alone. There's a term people. I have a bunch of clients going through this, you know, all those kind of things like, Oh my gosh, already I just felt myself relax in my chair (laughs) hearing you talk about that. Yeah, good. I'm glad. And it's, you know, this is something I had to work from the inside out, right? And I've been navigating such a parallel process to all of these women that happen to be my clients. So it helps me to say it out loud, right? And it does seem to really help. And it's kind of obvious, like, of course, right? And, And at the same time, we just need to hear it and say it and remind ourselves of it over and over. Yeah. So, okay. To, to resume your kind of, uh, first handful of steps. So you're, you're validating them. You're helping them not feel Mm -hmm. alone and crazy. Mm -hmm. You're explaining to them, you're doing a little psychoeducation. Mm -hmm. There is a term people research Mm -hmm. it. It's been around Mm -hmm. for 30 years, whatever. Mm -hmm. What's next? Uh, so next I try to help them find some empowerment and I just offer some gentle reminders. Like it's okay if you don't want to go to church this Sunday, right? It's okay. And in our religion, it can feel like such a slippery slope. Like if I don't go to church just for quote unquote, no reason, unless I'm like really sick or have a really sick kid, then that's bad. You know, I'm, I'm making a bad decision. But then you're talking about COVID. And so during COVID, you didn't need Mm -hmm. to give your clients permission to not go to church. They had scientific permission not to go and cultural permission with no judgment attached. Whereas normally, well, okay, I might listen to Jesus and love myself, but I'm going to get pushback from people. So this is like a, uh, what they call a natural experiment in science, right? Yeah. Something happens in the world and then it changes conditions and we can find out what happens. So what have you seen as the results of this natural experiment with COVID? I've seen it first started as kind of like whispers and a couple months into COVID where women would say, and oftentimes they knew I was LDS, but we wouldn't really talk about our shared religion that much. You know, it was more just like a shared language, a shared experience. And they would say like, you know, I don't know how you feel, but I don't really miss going to church, (laughs) like just whispering a little bit of a confession. And I would say like, yeah, I totally get that. You know, let's validate, let's explore. But then like dominoes it was over and over and over again. And so that's when I started to really pay attention and not in any real scientific way, but just anecdotally, you know, and kind of qualitatively a little bit tracking, oh, wow, like something is happening. And this permission, this external permission that's been granted to not participate. And in fact, it's kind of the other way, like there's kind of pressure and expectation to not participate for the first time ever yeah, has left a lot of room. You know, they're not using a lot of their time and energy and mental space on getting to church and spending two hours there and getting the kids ready and taking care of the kids and then doing all of these other um, callings, you know, showing up on Wednesday nights to lead the teenagers or going on a week long camp out in the summer. You know, there's so much more just of a temporal resource to pull from and then mental capacity is opening up in a way it just hadn't been. And so they're thinking more and noticing more. And this coincided with 2021 was the year we kind of study scriptures, a certain set of scriptures one year at a time. And through 2021, we studied the restoration and Joseph Smith and read a lot of his specific story and specific writings. And I don't know how familiar you are with his 
the history there, but he's controversial, you know, to say the least. Yeah. I, I know a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And even within our religion, there's this kind of unspoken understanding that, yeah, he kind of like was this conduit he was, you know, he did some cool stuff, but like, we're not going to talk about how he had multiple wives and didn't record that in the book of Mormon, for example. Right. And we're not going to talk about how they were all really young or a lot of them are very young. And, and uh, there's this kind of vilification of his widow for not joining the Mormons who went to Utah and she's the bad guy. He's the good guy, right? Patriarchy. So (laughs) he, in though this year, 2021, when so many women were a, not going to church but then be trying to still be like good Mormons and read these scriptures and study these lessons as presented by this big organization that they belong to their entire lives. They're looking at this through this with this through, from this space, right? This perspective, this distance they never had. And with this time and energy that they've never had to really be a critical reader and a critical consumer of these texts. And so a lot of women were saying, I don't even know if I believe in this anymore. Like this person that we almost worship, right? We're really, really close to making him one of our gods. It's really uncomfortable for me to actually latch on to that. And if I don't have that testimony anymore, and that's the foundation of this modern restoration of this latter day church, then what do I actually believe? Do I even believe in any of it? Right. And so kind of boom, boom, boom. And of course, that's not true for every single client of mine or every single woman. But it was a, these a few of these things, this, like you said, natural experiment, kind of happenstance, coincidence stuff that created a, a bit of a perfect storm for a lot of women. I think there's obviously people are listening and, and filling in the blanks of their own stories or stories of people mm-hmm. they know in, in primarily Protestant you know, scenarios which have their own flavor, but basically share that structure. I'm wondering how you balance, just get out of there, you know, like for all or some of your clients, like it would just be better if you were out of the LDS church with, oh, I also see the tremendous value Mm -hmm. that this has for many of my clients. And I shouldn't, myself have a black and white view. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but yeah. can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. If you're comfortable. Yeah, totally. I, you know, this is kind of an ongoing thing I wrestle with, right. Is because I happen to be born and raised in this religion. It's there's so much that's familiar and therefore comforting. And because I happen to fall into these various privileged identities, there's so much of it that really works for me, you know, and my immediate family. And that's why, you know, my head was a little bit in the sand until fairly recently. I can just lean into like, this is comfortable and this is, we can make this work and we can change it from the inside out. Right. And then there are moments where I question, and this is kind of more of like my responsibility as a mental health professional. Like I don't want to perpetuate the idea that anyone adjusts to oppressive systems, right? I don't want to encourage people to set themselves up in with awareness, right? For more and more betrayal trauma that just feels really, really icky and wrong. So with clients, I've had moments where in my head, I'm like, oh no, she needs to leave. Like this isn't working for her. She needs to be done. And then the next week or two weeks later, they'll come back and say, I had this experience and I've been thinking, and this is what I'm doing. And now this is how I'm staying and I'm more in than I've ever been. And that's, that's, what's actually good for them and right for them. And if I had at all tried to tell them what to do, I would have been another source of betrayal trauma, right? I would have been another source of misused power doing wow. harm in their lives. Wow. Right. Yeah. That's I know. great. <laughs> well, and no, cause it makes me think like there is a difference between like someone adjusting to oppressive systems and basically internalizing that oppression versus someone being fairly clear eyed and going, I'm in this church that believes this. I disagree with that. There are reasons to be here. And to the extent that I can, I will be a force for change Yeah. until that's not comfortable or working anymore. And those are, yeah. you know, you could, people could argue about the efficacy of various forms. I don't know 
if you change things better by leaving and maybe starting something new or by staying and pushing for change, it's situation to situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the psychological difference, if I had a client who was like just reassimilating all the bullshit mm-hmm. versus, no, I'm here and I disagree. And I, I know that I'm a, I'm 20% of my church agrees with me. And, yeah. you know, maybe we'll change it. Like those are so different from their yes. resilience and their meaning making and, you know, all that yep. kind of a thing. Right. Yep. I just learned over and over and over again to reiterate validation and then trust. Like I trust you client to do what is good for you when it's good for you to do it. And by good, I mean safe, right? I trust you to do yeah what is safe when it's safe with the people who are safe. And I might have some ideas of what might help you, but like, tell me what you think. And that's just helping to heal the betrayal trauma, because here's the thing, betrayal trauma always happens in relationship, whether it's one-on-one or organization on one, it happens in relationship. And so it needs to be healed in relationship. And with me, you know, I hope to do that, but also what I'm doing now is getting these women together. We need groups. We need, supports they need to know each other right i don't i don't think it's enough to say trust me you're not alone because how would they how could i expect them to actually just really trust me when every powerful person in their life has gotten them to where you know has led them to where they are which is a really painful place so i think they do right but that's just not enough they need to experience it for themselves and have that real experiential knowledge that can transform and escalate and elevate their self-trust. I had a note earlier about people, you know, going to church on Sunday, doing the Wednesday night thing, the the people for whom their church involvement is in the fabric of their lives in a very thick kind of a way. It makes me understand a little bit why so many Christians have pushed back against like not gathering uh, in person for during COVID. And of course, some of that is based on, you know, pseudoscience, conspiracy theories and mm-hmm, magical thinking. Mm-hmm. But some of it is mm-hmm. also based on the fact that, like, if someone is embedded in thick community and it is where they get most of their meaning and friendships and whatever, yeah. like, that is a real cost for them to yeah. not do that. It's so interesting. It's the exact same power that is causing your clients to need to take a break from it. Yes. It's because of the same power. Someone yeah. who's not being betrayed by the system it gets all the good parts of that power. And someone yep. who is being betrayed by the system is getting the bad side of that power. Either way, yep. it's power. And yeah. we, I think a lot of times people, those of us on the left who are not religious or particularly spiritual, we really underestimate the power of faith and faith communities in people's lives. And if we do that, we just will misdiagnose and misunderstand things. Again, if you don't want to talk about this because it's personal, you don't have to, but you are that second kind of person, the clear-eyed, still somewhat involved in the church. I mean, yeah. I, I was wondering yeah. about this earlier, but you know, your story of like the Bishop would not be coming over to say hi. If you were a ex Mormon working to yeah. deconvert women out of the church or whatever. <laughs> so you, so you're, you are instantiating that model to some degree. And I'm curious about that lived experience for you. Totally. Yeah. It's, you know, I had the worst depression, suicidality of my life last year, and it was Mm. right in the throes of a faith, you know, crumbling crisis. And so um, I'm happy to talk about it. I do get a lot of questions about like, so did you go to church on Sunday? You know, or like in Mormonism, you know, we're not supposed to drink coffee and people are like, have you tried coffee yet? Like they want to know about the behaviors and the the things that they can see and measure, right? Because that's what we are trained in Mormonism to do in order to gauge our faith, engage our membership, engage our activity. So I know it feels dodgy, but what I do is say like, I'm, it's not that it's a secret. And if you were in my ward, you would know the answers to most of these questions, right? It's not that it's a secret. It's that I want to shift the focus, and that's part of progressive Mormonism is to and Christianity is to shift the focus away from 
how do you appear to be to how are you actually being and getting back to this core doctrine, this like really, really stripped down Christ-like framework. And so I'll kind of dodge and be like, I know you're interested. And sometimes I'll kind of answer and sometimes I won't, but more like, I'm not going to ask you about whether or not you're wearing tank tops, you know, and I don't, I'm not going to ask you about what you're eating or drinking or doing on a Saturday night. I'm, and it's not that I'm not curious. I am right. Because I've been trained to be, and because I'm a human, it's more that I want to consciously help shift the focus, at least in this conversation. And then knock on wood, pie in the sky, and this bigger conversation in a bigger way within the actual organization, I think it's just more important that we stop checking each other's behaviors and tracking each other's behaviors. And it's been really important for me to stop performing those behaviors. I mean, as a Protestant, it sounds to me like you're drawing on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, the way that I think of the, the primary ethical move that Jesus makes in his main traveling sermon, this is his main stump speech, is, you know, <laughs> you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look on a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Mm-hmm. The, all And so many of his parables are like, you know, the rich man gives this money publicly. The poor person gives her last penny in secret. Yeah. And it's it's just not, it. it is an anti-legalistic gospel. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it is not about the measurable, I mean, the whole thing, the yeah. book of James, don't put the rich people in the fancy seats in yeah. your, you know, it's like, that is Christianity is like, yeah. no, it is not about the exterior. It is about the interior. Yeah. It is about the motivations of your heart. Yeah. And, and those are to some, like your answers about caffeine mm-hmm. or, and coffee, <laughs> they are to some degree secret. We, they are like our, our propensity for what we might call gossip, what we could also just call curiosity, depending on the situation, those are at odds with something about being human, which is fundamentally private between mm-hmm. us and God that yes. other people don't have access to. Mm-hmm. I just hear you drawing on the Sermon on the Mount in that sense. And Jesus's main ethical, I don't know Mormonism well enough to know how that plays, like if if you have to also be appealing to Joseph Smith or the institutes or whatever, I don't, I don't know how that goes. The way I like to describe it is that I'm kind of on the fence. And for a while I was really uncomfortably on the fence, but lately I've learned how to make the fence really comfortable for myself. Like I've built it in a way that is comfortable at pillows and blankets and cushions, right? I can just hang out and sit here. And sometimes I get down on one side and sometimes I get down on the other, right? But for the most part, this is where I live is on the fence. And so when we talk about behaviors and checking boxes in Mormonism, you know, traditional Mormonism tells us that that's not a behavior. It's an act of faith, right? It's another way to practice and show your beliefs. And progressive Mormonism, which my argument is just kind of the pure Christianity version of Mormonism uh, tells us that that stuff doesn't really matter. And I point to how much those things have changed over the years to show how little they actually matter. You know, that if it was real true core tenant, it wouldn't be edited as often as it is. And because the LDS church, we rely on modern prophets and continual revelation means that there's a lot of change. There's so much change all the time, right? And so that change is reflected in things like the questions you get when you, or the questions you have to answer when you want to get a temple recommend in order to actually go into the temple. There's a list of, I think it's 10, maybe 12 questions, and they're very specific, right, about your behaviors. And so some people are committed to honesty in a way that means like, I think I deserve to go to the temple. I think I'm worthy. I don't believe any of this stuff matters. I'm going to answer your questions honestly and likely not get this temple recommend and grieve that, right? Because it is important to me. Some people are committed to safety in a way that means I'm not going to answer this to this stranger, especially women, this, this man I don't know very well, ask me about all of these personal things. I'm just going to say what he needs to hear to get me access to this place that is sacred and important to me. And there's a lot of tension, right? When you have to choose between honesty and safety, we know that clinically and psychologically, then of course, spiritually. And in these honestly, just social 
relationships. Again, this guy who would be interviewing me is younger than I am. So we have this different kind of peer relationship that I've never had with authority before. So much interesting stuff, (laughs) Caitlin. I'm so glad to be getting to know you a little bit in a public forum, of course, performing (laughs) on a podcast. Um, But so many, I mean, we're going to have to, if you'll, if you consent, be in touch because what you're working on has so much overlap with what I'm working on. It's so interesting. I would love to. Is there anything that we've sort of left out or have we pretty much covered the topic in your mind? Whenever I talk about betrayal trauma, I like to address that the word betrayal and the word trauma, they're they're both really heavy and together they can feel really overwhelming. And so if there's any sort of resonance, you know, for any of your listeners, I just want to assure you too, that there's tons of hope and space for healing and space for change, both from the inside out and then externally in these systems. And again, a plug for Jennifer Fried, she's done amazing work at both the individual healing level and the systemic healing level. So you'll be able to explore that from the links in the show notes, I'm sure. I think that's everything for now, but thank you, Dan. This has been so fun. And yeah, let's definitely stay in touch. Amen. Uh, I've also (laughs) got a link. We'll have a link to your website and that episode nine on patriarchy with Carolyn Custis James. You can become a patron for $5 a month and get access to the patron-only Facebook group, as well as two exclusive episodes per month. And thanks to Josh Gilbert, my editor and producer. He is available for additional work. His email is in the show notes. Caitlin, thank you so much for being with us this week. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure.